Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah. And also joining us today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Happy to be here and happy to be 100% coronavirus free. Oh, don't say that. You <laughs> don't <now>. know. <laughs> you don't know. You live out in the sticks enough, Luke, that it might be okay. I'll be fine. On today's podcast, we are recording on Sunday, the day after the South Carolina primary, a primary that Joe Biden won easily this weekend. The former vice president finally notched his first victory in a primary election in his three times running for the nation's highest office. The victory does give his campaign some momentum headed into Super Tuesday, and this race increasingly looks like a two-person contest between Biden and Bernie Sanders, so we'll react to Saturday's vote. Then it is now March, meaning that we are only three weeks away from the Democratic primary vote in Georgia, and that vote coincides with the state rolling out its new touchscreen voting machines. So we're going to talk about how that rollout has been going. So first, let's start with the South Carolina primary here. Joe Biden won in a rout on Saturday. He carried every county in the state and won 48% of the total vote, beating Bernie Sanders, the next closest person, by 30 points in the process. Biden credited South Carolina with launching his campaign on the path to defeating Donald Trump, rescuing a campaign that pundits said was dead. He told the audience, we are very much alive at his uh, celebration on Saturday night. Now Biden stands as possibly the only viable alternative to a Bernie Sanders nomination, and Super Tuesday's vote is right around the corner. Let's start, y'all, with just reactions to Biden's victory here. Biden's campaign really was one that was pretty much written off after abysmal performances in Iowa in New Hampshire. Megan, what was your reaction to Biden's victory in South Carolina on Saturday? I was somewhat surprised, but not overly surprised. A lot of the other candidates, well, maybe not a lot, but some of the other candidates do have issues with the Black American vote, which is a really crucial piece of the vote in South Carolina. Whereas we've known for a while that Biden was polling generally well in those areas. So I was surprised considering I kind of thought that maybe people might have been switching their votes because he was considered no longer viable. But if you go on older polls, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, Luke, what did you think? Biden did have some competition here. Uh, Tom Steyer, who is a billionaire for some reason that I don't think anybody really truly understands. Uh, he spent a lot of money in South Carolina trying to increase his name ID. Um, and it turned out that only Biden and Sanders were the two candidates that were viable in this race, meaning they were the only ones to get 15% of the vote. Steyer fell short of that despite spending uh, millions of dollars, uh, particularly in South Carolina. Uh, what were your takeaways from the Palmetto State? Uh, my my key takeaway is that Joe Biden came into this race with a strategy that in some shape had been tried before by others, which was, I will lose X number of the first couple states, and then I will come to smashing victory in the state that favors me. And Joe Biden is quite arguably the first person to employ that strategy and actually be successful. So, you know, kudos to him for that. And the reason why I think that was successful for him and it wasn't successful for you know friend of the show Rudy Giuliani who very famously in 2008 was going to skip a ton of states until Florida and then Florida would be his smashing victory uh, and it didn't work out I think the reason why it worked out for Joe Biden is because the fact of the matter is he is the you know last Democratic vice president and having that role plus the fact that the state that he was talking about was not you know Florida which you know is just kind of like an average state like it was the first state that featured a significant African-American population because while Nevada is very diverse and far more representative of the Democratic Party than either Iowa or New Hampshire um, it all it ultimately was a state that looked far more like the Democratic Party than Iowa or New Hampshire. And so he had good claim to South Carolina meaning a lot more for the rest of the states than 
previous people who have tried this strategy might have had. The other thing why I was kind I was not surprised by the top line result that Joe Biden wins for for two reasons. One, uh, James Clyburn, very long time, very popular African-American congressman there who really is keyed into South Carolina. I mean, there are a few politicians, I think, that can claim that they understand their constituency the way that James Clyburn understands South Carolina. Uh, and so, like, his endorsement actually matters. I, I usually think endorsements aren't that important, but his really is, especially in South Carolina. So that really helped him. Uh, it's also noteworthy that Joe Biden picked up Tim Kaine's endorsement. So the previous, you know, vice presidential nominee for the party endorsed him. Not only did he get Tim Kaine's endorsement, uh, Terry McAuliffe, former Virginia governor, uh, somebody who is basically like a wealthy financier of democratic politics, also endorsed Joe Biden. Um, and that sort of gives you a preview of the lens of Super Tuesday that's coming uh, because he picked up, Biden picked up those two key Virginia endorsements. Uh, Bernie Sanders was actually in Virginia on Saturday night as results from South Carolina were coming in. And I was going to say, oh, yeah, and if on. I can pick up the thread from there, what I think this is an illustration of with Joe Biden, and this is the part that I found surprising, winning almost 50% of the vote, which he's the first candidate to do that in any state and you know, getting close to that more than 50% of the vote. What I think Biden has officially done with this is that he has proven himself to be the anti-Bernie. Now, you can say that's either a good thing or a bad thing, whether we're going to anti-Bernie, like, put that aside. What I'm saying is every other candidate in the race, ha besides Bernie, because obviously Bernie's not the anti-Bernie, has had an opportunity to prove themselves as the anti-Bernie. Like, Pete Buttigieg got more delegates in Iowa. He had a very strong second showing in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, but then he basically shit the bed in uh, Nevada. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, as much as I love her, uh, you know, has not done very well outside of uh, Iowa or New Hampshire. And Tom Steyer, as you mentioned earlier, spent a crap ton of money here and did not really show any good results. And then finally, Mike Bloomberg has spent a ton of money, but was just awful on the debate stage and, you know, just has not done himself any favors there. And so lots of candidates. Oh, I should not leave out Amy Klobuchar also having a strong third place in New Hampshire and did nothing with it. But, you know, again, like the fact that I just had to go through all these different people and like state why they have failed is an indication that this is... I, I think this is just the point where the party was doing what pri you know what primaries give the opportunity for parties to do to assess the candidates that were out there and seeing who could potentially be viable and really primarily because Biden is the only candidate that has been able to build support in the African American community um, in a real way he has shown himself to be the candidate that's going to go against Bernie. I'm frankly a little surprised that no one besides Steyer dropped. I think Steyer made a really smart decision, uh, not only for his wallet, but uh, for his own personal well-being and for his ability to still have a role in the Democratic Party going forward because he got really ravaged in that last debate and I don't think things would have gotten much better for him and he was going to sp be spending a lot of his own money and probably not get a lot of result. Uh, I don't see why, you know, again, as much as I like both of them, uh, Klobuchar and Warren remain in this race after these showings because both of their home states, both Massachusetts and Minnesota, are part of Super Tuesday. And unless some Titanic change happens, you know, in the next literally like 48 hours, they're going to get blown out to Bernie Sanders in their home states. And if he wins the nomination, that's not going to be something I particularly would want to have hanging over my head as a elected state, you know, um, you know, U.S. Senator uh, and having the flag bearer of my party beat me in my home state that that has the words primary challenge ring all over it. And so I think as we enter the South, uh, what we're going to see is Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders going head to head and, and Biden really being able to consolidate uh, the not Bernie faction 
uh, based off of his strong showing here. And I, I think it's, you know, the, the other campaigns are sort of on life support. Yeah, Luke. And I, I think that raises, you know, as you look forward to Super Tuesday, uh, Biden himself wanted to position this as a two-person race. And let's listen to a little bit of what he said in his victory speech on Saturday night. Democrats want to nominate someone who will build on Obamacare, not scrap it. Take, take on the NRA and gun manufacturers, not protect them. Stand up and give the poor a fighting chance and the middle class get restored, not raise their taxes and make, keep the promises we make. Then join us. And if the Democrats want a nominee who's a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, a proud Democrat, an Obama-Biden Democrat, Uh, so that was Biden at his victory speech on Saturday night. Megan, this was the first time that I had sort of heard criticisms of Sanders in sort of a moment of triumph. To me, the over and over in the debates when people have tried to come after Sanders or his big vision, um, it tends to come off as these are things that we cannot do or thing, these are things that you do not have support for. It it was a different environment. Biden was given a speech to his supporters when he had won a massive victory in this state. But what do you think of Biden's criticisms of Bernie here, situating himself as the heir to the Obama legacy, the heir to the Democratic legacy, and the one who is most in line with what Democratic voters want their president to champion? I agree with him partially. Um, I think the thing that I take the most issue with is the fact that he's still essentially running on the platform of I was Obama's VP and Obama, Obama, Obama. You know, I want to know more about Biden than the fact that he worked, you know, with Obama. I I know that already, right? Like he's been beating us over the head with that for months. Let's let that part of his campaign just rest. So like, I don't love that. Um, as far as him talking about, you know, he said something to the effect of Democrats not wanting somebody who's going to start a revolution. Um, I think we do. I think we just, a lot of us, including myself, understand that you revolutions, um, when it comes to something like changing the presidency, need to go more stepwise than be a total overthrow. We're not, you know, we're not staging a coup here. Um, we're, we're, we're in the middle of an election and somebody that's going to be electable that not, that won't wreak havoc down ballot. Like Biden's right. He, he is one of those candidates that could do that. Sanders is the one that if he is at the top of the ballot, we are pretty much guaranteed to unflip the house. You know, his, my biggest fear with a Sanders president or a, sorry, a Sanders nominee is that he's going to turn out. I mean, he's already turning out MAGA people in droves. People are posting on social how they're going and pulling a Democratic ballot for these primaries to go vote for Sanders because they know he's going to wreak havoc on all of the work that we've done done as Democrats. So I agree with him partially. Um, Biden is not my choice, just to be perfectly clear, but I am definitely one of those vote blue no matter who people at the end of the day. But um, I... You know, I, I think he had a lot of good points, just maybe not the words or quite the emphasis I would have made were I in his shoes. Luke, all of this begs the question of whether or not he can carry this momentum into Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is right around the corner. Early voting is already happening in a lot of Super Tuesday states. The new Sunday morning going into Monday was very positive about Biden. Do you think we're going to feel as positively about Biden and his chances uh, after Super Tuesday is done? That's a little complicated. Uh, the first reason for that is some early voting has been going on. Actually, a lot of early voting has been going on. And so if you were one of the folks who kind of like bought into the Bloomberg hype before he had the terrible debates or you were you know, Amy or Pete curious, then you might have, you know, cast your early vote for uh, one of those candidates. But the the other thing is, there's a ton of states on uh, Super Tuesday. This is something people have talked about for quite a while. 
And I think even if Biden wins more states, he's going to have a hard time coming up with more delegates just because California and Texas are two states that uh, Bernie are, is currently projected to win. Uh, and he will get a pretty healthy delegate haul from, from both of them, especially in California, since uh, it has a ton of delegates to offer. Uh, has 415, in fact, and Sanders could really walk away with a lot of them. And so I feel like the fact that Sanders is probably going to win California and Texas, he's probably going to beat the other two senators in their home states. I feel like it's going to be really hard for uh, Biden to have a performance even if he won literally every other state, like I feel like those would just be bigger stories that you know Bernie beat the other two senators in the race in their own home states, and that Bernie once wins California and Texas. Like I feel like that's bigger than you know like North Carolina, Virginia, Colorado, Tennessee, Alabama, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Utah, Maine, uh, Vermont, which of course Bernie will win, and American Samoa. Um, like I feel like that just won't hit the headline in the same way. And so Biden very well might uh, come out looking pretty good as far as the delegate math goes, but the media narrative might go in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, the other headwinds that the Biden campaign faces at this point, Bernie Sanders' campaign announced on Sunday morning that they raised $46 million in February. And Biden's campaign has also picked up in terms of fundraising. Uh, They said they they entered the month of February with just over $7 million cash on hand and said that they raised $5 million since Saturday and $2 million more between the South Carolina debate and the vote in South Carolina on Saturday. But Bernie Sanders' numbers just dwarf Biden. And the fact that Bernie can continue to cash in, I mean, he has a very solid base for financing his operation in these states. Bernie is obviously getting outspent by magnitudes, by Bloomberg. Uh, But I think Steyer, to some extent, is a bit of a cautionary tale for how much support a lot of money can buy you. Now, Bloomberg is spinning it in unreal level. Oh, for Um, sure. But but Bernie has consistent investment in his organization. Biden has struggled to maintain his organization in Super Tuesday states. Uh, There was reporting in the New York Times that said that outreach to party chairs in these states has been kind of minimal. He doesn't have a ton of staff in these states. Because he doesn't have a lot of money, he's not running a lot of ads in these states. So he's really, you know, it was good that he gave a great speech at his victory on Saturday night. Uh, Because that is probably the most valuable piece of free media that he is taking forward into Super Tuesday. Um, And he just he doesn't have a lot of firepower otherwise. Yeah, though, I I mean, I would argue. Biden doesn't need money in a way that like all these other campaigns really, really needs money. This is the one place where being the former vice president just is such a huge advantage because like no one's going to forget that Joe Biden is in the race. And if you somehow did and you weren't sure who to vote for when you walked into the ballot box and you saw Joe Biden's name, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember him. And I, I, I feel I feel like he he can survive like none of these other campaigns can uh, being strapped for cash. Uh, The other interesting dynamic coming out of the vote on Saturday is that on Sunday, the Warren campaign published a memo, which basically admitted that they are in this race with the, with their eye towards winning it at a contested convention in Milwaukee at the democratic convention this summer. Megan, what do you make of the Warren campaign admitting that they are staying in this race despite the fact that they don't believe they can get a majority of the delegates, and instead they're going to make a pretty blatant play to rally superdelegates together and win in a contested convention? I think it's an interesting decision. I will say I don't love it, Um, but I don't love it just because of the type of person I am and the type of... uh, contest I suppose I want to see I want to see there be a strong winner I want to see I don't want to see the super delegates get to make this decision that feels like it's distancing my opinion and my vote from actually mattering and that's a big problem that we have 
you know, not only nationwide, but within the Democratic Party. It's why a lot of Dems don't vote is because they say it doesn't matter. So I think that angling, you know, taking that angle really just kind of takes the vote out of people's hands and makes it matter less. I don't love that. I do love Warren. Um, I think that Warren would make a great president. I just don't love that that's the angle that she's deciding that her campaign's going to take. I'd almost rather see her drop out than do that because I'd rather it be, as I just said, a contest that means more to the people who are actually showing up to the primaries. To to contrast that, though, she is basically saying that she uh, would like to keep the door open for her to win using the rules that Bernie Sanders himself had the convention change itself to, you know, torts. Because effectively, the process in which Bernie would have won 2016 is doing exactly what Warren wants to do. So I I think it is fair to point out the potential hypocrisy from uh, the, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters who say that it's, you know, completely a apocryphal for Warren or anyone else to try this strategy when it is in fact the exact strategy that Bernie Sanders worked really hard to create in 2017 or 2016. That's definitely a fair point. I just, I didn't like it then and I don't like it now. It's interesting to me as a matter of just pretty, you know, straightforward campaign strategy. Warren, to the extent she has had any success, I believe she is having success with voters who would like her and probably would like Bernie Sanders Probably voters who, I mean, some voters might also like Pete Buttigieg among the less ideologically stringent ones. Um, But Warren saying this after having a pretty poor performance in the first four states, unless she can turn it around and actually rack up significant delegates uh, later in this contest, um, it seems to me that it's pretty easy to criticize her for potentially holding Bernie back in terms of making this a two-person race, one person who represents the progressive wing of the party and another who represents a more moderate wing. I think she's going to face that kind of criticism for being pretty straightforward about this strategy. Now, you know, if it, if, if in the end, when you look at the delegate count after all the states have voted and Bernie does not have a commanding lead, uh, this all assumes that he doesn't get a majority. But if he doesn't have a commanding lead, then maybe Warren is just being honest about the only way that she's going to win this race is to be able to do it at a contested convention. I don't know. It's going to draw her a lot of fire. And I I don't necessarily see it as a way to build her support. Um, and so it was interesting that that was a part of the public messaging of the campaign. Obviously, they're all thinking about this behind the scenes. Two debates ago, People may remember that the final question of the debate was whether or not the candidate who earned the most delegates, regardless of whether they earned a majority, whether they should be the nominee for the party. And Bernie Sanders was the only one to say, yes, the person with the most delegates should be the nominee. And everyone else said something to the effect of we should play by the rules of the party, which means potentially the person who does not have the most delegates will not become the nominee. Um, so I don't know. It was just, I, it was a surprising thing to read on the morning after South Carolina. The final thing before we bring this back to Georgia a little bit here, if you've been watching Elizabeth Warren's campaign really closely, she, I think more than any other candidate, has engaged with diverse activist bases, activist groups representing the interests of African Americans and Latinx voters, and has structured her policy plans and her rhetoric around how to address issues of systemic racism, systemic inequality. And that has earned her a lot of praise from these activist organizations. She's done things like make racial justice an entire plank of her climate strategy. Uh, Just this week, she added a prominent proposal from Cory Booker to her criminal justice plan. Um, Even when she was attacking Michael Bloomberg during the debate, she was talking about his beliefs on on redlining and saying that the Democratic Party could no longer talk about financial issues in a race blind way. And this has earned her sort of a lot of elite activist support. 
But Megan, this has not translated at all into any meaningful level of support among African-American voters in South Carolina or Latinx voters in Nevada. What do you make of of that disconnect between a lot of you know, Democratic Party elites, people who pay a lot of attention to this stuff are really focused on these issues of structural racism, intersectional policy. That doesn't seem to be catching on with voters. No, it doesn't. It seems so. Here's the thing. There are people like us, right? We are glued to everything political. People have told me multiple times, oh, you're a glutton for punishment. You must be so depressed. You do nothing but listen to NPR and read political news, which I don't necessarily agree with the glutton for punishment thing, maybe sometimes, but the whole idea of... It's a great ad for NPR. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, like, I am glued to this. I know it's being talked about. I know it's in the news. I know what legislators are looking at. Most of my colleagues and most of the people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis, they're just trying to live their lives. You know, they listen to music on the way to work, or they listen to, I don't know, true crime podcasts on the way to work, which I also listen to, but usually after I've finished catching up on the news. Um, you know, they're they're trying to live their lives. They care more about the things that really affect them right here, right now. Healthcare, they care about healthcare. Taxes, they care about taxes. There's not much else that goes into their day-to-day things that they're checking on. So it doesn't surprise me that she's getting the support of these political elites who are spending a lot of time being engaged on these topics. And that message and those efforts aren't reaching the people that are trying to live their lives and aren't glued to all of this political news and being political wonks all the time. Yeah, it's just kind of a notable disconnect for me when you've watched the conversation, you know, early in the debate process, Julian Castro basically challenged the entire field to end criminal penalties for uh, immigrating to the United States unlawfully. Uh, That is a proposal that does not poll very well. And people, average voters probably don't think about issues like these very much, especially not in a really specific and meaningful context, even if they may have sort of general notions about the issue of immigration or the issue of racial injustice. Um, But activists have been demanding that candidates you know, acknowledge that these issues are big issues, structure their policies, talk about them on the trail. And for the candidate who has it, it just didn't break through. It's, it's, you know, activists are going to be activists. They believe strongly, this is why they get up out of bed every day to do the work that they do. They believe strongly that these issues are important, should be important for politicians to be engaged on. Um, but it may not be the best advice to every presidential candidate to say, we need 14 plans that lay out all your views on intersectional policy and racism. That may not be the best use of a candidate's time. Right. Well, and I think these plans are very important, right? And they affect everyday Americans in ways that everyday Americans may not realize. But they're not, as you mentioned earlier, they're not the things that these everyday Americans are necessarily thinking about or or necessarily realize are going to affect their day-to-day lives, right? They're way more worried about putting food on the table and making sure that they can take their kid to the doctor when they need to. So, you know, if you're going to if you're going to have all these plans, that's great, but you need to have a better balance or you need to have different channels to reach those everyday Americans that aren't, you know, political wonks. And I think that that a lot of the campaigns have not done a great job of striking that balance. So we've been talking a lot about Super Tuesday states and notably absent from Super Tuesday in this cycle is Georgia. Luke, why aren't Georgia voters going to go and vote on Super Tuesday next week? Well, I think one thing to point out is that uh, for those of you who don't know, Georgia has for quite a long time been a part of Super Tuesday. Uh, I mean, in 2016, uh, our then Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, made a big deal of the like SEC primary and getting a lot of big southern states that were part of the SEC to have their primary on Super Tuesday. Um, I'm pretty sure we've been 
part of Super Tuesday for since the beginning of Super Tuesday, and uh, one of the only other times we were not was when Zell Miller wanted to help out his buddy Bill Clinton and pushed our primary up a little bit so that Clinton could get his first win. So, uh, you know, fast-forwarding to the present, the reason why it uh, appears to me that we are not on Super Tuesday is to give the state more time to uh, get the new voting machines online. Uh, I know uh, some people who uh, serve as poll workers, and they've been telling me that they have just started work, you know, getting their training on the new machines, uh, you know, in the past couple weeks. And so I think more than anything else, it was just to ensure that we were going to actually have the new system up and running, uh, which was especially important because uh, due to some of the lawsuits that the old machines were involved with, the uh, municipal elections in 2019 were the last time we could actually use the old machines, and we had to either have this new system that we will be using later this month up and running or paper ballots. And so that's probably why we weren't in Super Tuesday. So, Luke, that begs the question of this will be the first major election that these new voting machines are rolled out on. And there's been a lot of discussion. We participated in this some about whether or not Georgia is going to be ready for this vote, whether or not the proper processes are in place, whether or not local poll workers and precinct staff are adequately trained to roll this system out effectively on Super Tuesday for this vote. You, I don't think we've gotten a chance to talk about this on the show before, but you did go to the Board of Elections office in athens Clark County when these machines were sort of put on public display for people to test and get a sense of how they work. What is your sense of, or, or how can we talk about whether or not Georgia's ready to put these voting machines out there on March 24th? So... The way I would look at this is, you know, let's start with positive because we've we've hit a lot of negative things. As far as the sequencing of elections, the state has a great opportunity to do everything right and to like really learn from mistakes because since this is basically a one-party presidential primary, it will be an election that attracts a lot of attention, but it'll really primarily only be Democrats turning out. And so all these jurisdictions should probably have pretty light comparatively, early voting cycles and pretty light election days. And then we will have pretty heavily contested uh, May primaries. So that will be slightly bigger. And then we'll have a probably a pretty large election day. And so we have really three, chan- well, you know, two, two test runs before the main event to get everything right. So with that being said, I think just naturally this, you know, lines will probably be longer. Uh, just because new systems, you know, takes time to, uh, you know, to work out the kinks and figure out what you're doing. And barring like hardware failures and software failures from what I've heard from people who are poll workers is the administrative side of these machines are a little bit easier. That's not shocking to me considering that the old machines were from 2001. Uh, so, you know, technology has improved a lot, uh, between then and now. Um, so the, the, you know, the real question will be, uh, on, you know, my end is just like what the user experience is like, uh, for voters and, you know, how well is, uh, how, excuse me, how well the changes are communicated to them and how quickly people, uh, you know, just adapt to the system being slightly different. Uh, on on my experience, I mean, it was, it was fine. I I didn't run into any trouble. The new machine is pretty similar to the old machine. I guess that is a positive, um, for picking this type of machine is that the learning curve will be pretty small for most voters, I think, because uh, you basically do the same thing. Uh, it's just the interface is slightly different. And it is, you know, some some positive things about the new system is it does um, let you know if you missed a race and you like accidentally skipped a race and you didn't mean to, and you have an opportunity to go back. And once you're done, it does print out a paper copy uh, where you can actually read 
what you voted for. Um, though that is not what the machine scans. It also has a QR code on it, and that is what actually goes into the machine. So if there's a problem on that side, you really wouldn't know, but there's at least a paper backup. So I think it's one of those things that like going into it, we really don't know what is going, like what the election day experience is going to be like for most Georgians, but we will have a lot to look at after the election, assuming that the uh, Secretary of State's office puts out some statistics uh, about the election. Question. And, yeah. Do you get to keep a copy of the paper thing that gets printed out, or do you submit that at the door as you're walking out? So neither. You don't get to keep a receipt. It prints, after you are done, it prints out like a printer. You go to that printer, and you can look at your ballot, see everything looks right, you know, again, the QR code, you won't know what it does, but you uh, at least see what the paper copy says. And then you actually submit that into a machine that uh, scans it and like drops it into a lockbox, basically. Um, so you don't get a receipt, but they get a paper receipt that you scan. So in. if they're dropping it to a lockbox, they could, in theory, go back and check to see like if there's some sort of, you know, accusation that the QR code got read wrong. They could go read the plain text version of the vote. Yes, they could. Okay. Yeah, they, you have to do it by hand. And, and you know, to be fair, because we've been very critical of these machines, that is a massive improvement, and I'm really happy that's there because the old system, you literally couldn't even do that. There was no paper receipt whatsoever, and so like, while it's not as far as I really would like it to go, just being honest and being objective, like this is a significant improvement and it's just now it becomes a question of what are the requirements for forcing the state to actually do that hand paper count um you know that that's going to be an important question uh going forward if there are any other uh allegations of you know uh inconsistencies but at least on that front you know there there is some sort of backup now when there previously was not so my understanding is that the State Board of Elections recently voted on a rule where they were considering whether or not to do recounts when those are required by law, considering whether or not to do recounts by recounting everything with the QR codes, basically running through running them through the system and counting them again that way, versus a hand count of looking at each of these printouts, looking at the voter selection that is in plain text and counting it that way. The State Board of Elections opted to do recounts with the QR codes, but sort of a separate issue and the way in which the state argues that they would be able to catch any inconsistencies is there is also an audit requirement in the legislation that authorize these voting machines that would require a random sample of ballots to be to be pulled and for the state to basically match the information in the QR code to the printout, the the plain text readout of a voter's choice on the printout. And so the state would argue that you catch inconsistencies with the audit uh, because it would, if you pull a random selection of ballots, you should be able to catch any sort of tampering or hacking efforts. Activists who have been working on this issue, I think, want to get rid of the QR code entirely and skip that step and have everything counted uh, by hand, that process would be a little bit closer to a full paper ballot, uh, which is what they really want, basically bubbling in numbers on a Scantron like we did in school. So, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out. Colorado got rid of the QR code on their Dominion voting system, systems that are the same as the ones that Georgia is adopting, but they are not doing that until 2021 uh, because Dominion has to roll out a software update to be able to do that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if in the long run, the implementation here sort of adjusts and, um, and Georgia ultimately ditches the QR code too. Another issue here with the machines that people have been paying a lot of attention to is the possibility that these machines could increase wait times. Another jurisdiction that rolled out touchscreen voting machines in a process that was similar to the ones that Georgia is adopting, uh, they anticipated that voters in their jurisdiction would take up to three times as long on the touchscreen voting machines to go through the whole process as they would to just vote on a plain paper ballot. 
Um, the Secretary of State is actually backing legislation that was introduced in the state Senate last week that would require precincts to measure the wait times at their precinct three times during election day um, and to do some things like adjusting the distribution of equipment or poll workers based on whether or not people were having to wait longer than an hour. But another element of that legislation that has become the subject of debate for activists on this issue is it would weaken the requirement that every precinct have one voting machine for every 250 registered voters that are a part of that precinct. Um, the legislation, as I understand it, keeps the 250 to 1 requirement for general elections but weakens it for other elections. Um, and state elections officials had also wanted to give the locals the power to reduce that ratio uh, if a significant portion of voters voted early so they wouldn't be there on election day. What do y'all make of, of those decisions that still seem to be going on or, or in flux as these rules are being made and as legislation is being pursued in this legislative session? I like the flexibility of it. I do think that it gives them the ability to potentially change things as they go. What I am wondering, what I find myself wondering is where they're getting this these numbers, um, you know, okay, so one voting machine for every 250, you know, why is that the number? What's the research there? Like, those are the questions that I want to know. Um, I know personally, I am a little bit worried about wait times. Um, I, I am an early and easy adopter to new technology because I work in technology, but I know for sure that there are people that are going to have a hard time. So I'm just planning on voting early. In fact, I'm going next week. It's already on my calendar. I'm going with a friend. We're going to go during lunch and that's just going to be what we do. But I do, I'm, I do find myself wondering while I applaud the flexible, the potentially flexible approach, where the numbers came from in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind this is in some ways kind of a giant experiment, the rollout of these voting machines. And they're, they are being rolled out in a lot of jurisdictions, not just in Georgia. Um, some counties in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and North Carolina are rolling out these machines. Most of Texas is adopting these machines. Los Angeles County is adopting these machines, as are all of Delaware and South Carolina. Georgia's, I believe, is the biggest single rollout. Um, and when I refer to these machines, I just mean generally the touchscreen to print out ballot machines. There's a couple of different vendors in this space that are supplying machines that basically do the same thing, but sort of have their own tweaks. Um, there have been issues that have been raised with the rollout of these machines uh, and with testing that has gone on um, in other jurisdictions in Northampton County in Pennsylvania the Associated Press reported that there were two major issues with some of the machines there, misconfigurations that impacted the way the votes were cast, and miscalibrated touchscreens, which basically meant when you were trying to hit the button for the candidate that you want to select, the, the alignment of the touchscreen and the software was off, so it was actually clicking someone else instead of the person you were touching on the screen. There have also been some issues in pilot jurisdictions in Georgia that have tested these. The Secretary of State's office tends to downplay these and say a lot of this is due to human error. Better training will solve a lot of these issues. Um, and it is helpful that you have a presidential primary, then another primary for Georgia state and local elections later, and then the big thing in November, which is going to really have the highest turnout. The state will have time to iron those things out. Uh, but it's probably they're probably going to be feeling the heat of activists who have been very critical of the state at just about every turn in this process. Luke, the other big elections news that is going to be happening this week is it is qualifying week in the state of Georgia. And the interesting thing to note about qualifying, and then I'll ask you what your outlook is on this, is qualifying for the second U.S. Senate race, the seat that is currently held by Kelly Leffler, where Doug Collins is challenging her, that qualifying is also going to happen in conjunction with qualifying for everything else this week. There was some question as to whether or not Georgia law would allow that qualifying to actually go all the way out until September. 
because the quote unquote primary, the jungle primary is not until November. What do you have any thoughts on whether having the qualifying for that Senate race is going to be meaningful at all for Democrats or Republicans? And what are some of the other things that you're looking for in qualifying this week? Well, to hit the Loeffler one first, um, I, I think it doesn't matter that much when the qualifying is for that race. I'm sure someone could make an argument that would be interesting, but I would not be very convinced. I think it's, I don't see the dynamics of that race changing very much. And if someone, I, I don't, I just don't see someone between now and September who decides to get in could really shake up that race at all. Um, so that would be my starting point on that one. Really qualifying is probably the most anxiety inducing week in politics. Uh, for me, just because that is the only time where I've been just truly shocked by things, uh, you know, whether it's a uh, surprise candidate popping up or a, you know, someone qualifying that I didn't expect or unfortunately, uh, more times than not, you know, people I thought would qualify and then they don't because this is really the only opportunity for Democrats to prove that they have the muscle and the potential candidates to actually flip the state house back um and because this is the day that you or sorry the week where you get on the ballot and so there's always you know people who are thinking about running or even exploring running uh it might even be raising money but this is when they actually have to either commit to the race or not um and something surprising pretty much always happens uh so i will be wa- watching and refreshing the uh state's website with uh a lot of interest on just seeing just who all qualifies, how many Democratic challengers we will have to vulnerable Republican opponents, and you know the flip side too, how many uh, serious candidates will Republicans uh, be able to find for the uh, potentially vulnerable Republican or sorry Democrat uh, incumbents? And so I'll be watching that with great interest. I, I think it will be. Um, really interesting because as i said there, there's always some something out of left field that happens so uh you know keep your eyes open megan your state representative had an interesting move this week uh state representative abel mabel thomas had told greg bluestein that she was 99 percent likely to jump into that uh kelly leffler doug collins open primary race uh she would be yet another democrat to join that field uh, really, you know, the, the number of Democrats in that race has really started to pile up with Raphael Warnock, a former state senator, a former U.S. attorney, Ed Tarver, Matt Lieberman, uh, Joe Lieberman's son, who we talked to on the show a little while ago. Uh, Abel Mabel Thomas would be the fourth Democrat in that race, unless I'm forgetting somebody else. Um, what was your reaction to that? And do you think that she has uh, any chance to really uh, make a run at that seat? So I had been hearing through the grapevine that she had her thoughts kind of geared toward that for a while. Um, I believe she was at an event not too long ago where she mentioned that she had at least launched an exploratory committee. Um, So not totally surprised. Um, And I am excited to see her enter that race. If for no other reason, than she offers a very different perspective than I think a lot of the others in it. Um, I'm going to withhold judgment on whether or not I think she can win just because I don't know much about some of the other candidates that are in it. But I do did enjoy her as my representative. And so I have no problem with the idea of her being our senator. So we'll just see how that goes. Luke, though, it does seem like Democrats are not going to be successful in trying to limit entrance into that field. Uh, I, I will be more blunt than Megan. Uh, I will be the next king of China if Mabel Abel Thomas is our next senator or even the primary Democrat nominee. Uh, Raphael Warnock is more likely than not going to be the most viable candidate in that race. And uh, Matt Lieberman is all, you know, fighting for a strong second. But I mean, I mean, frankly, if you are interested in the Democratic Party having a senator from the state of Georgia in that seat and your name is not Raphael Warnock or I will throw a bone to Matt Lieberman, like, don't run. You have so many other things you can do to help the party. And this is a vanity project for anyone else because 
Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler are going to fight for the death um, for this race, and math is really hard to argue with. And unless you can convince me that you will get 50% plus one uh, in a race, then I don't think you should be there for a jungle primary because that is the only way Democrats win because Democrats have a long history of getting very close in a November election only to lose in a runoff election. And I think that is what having a bunch of Democrats run 5% baggy campaigns, that is a recipe for it. And Doug Collins, Donald Trump, and Kelly Loeffler are jumping with joy with the announcement that, you know, Abel Mabel is going to run uh, because that is pretty much all she's going to achieve. Um, And, you know, God bless her that she thinks that she has something to bring to the race. But, you know, if that was true, I feel like, she's had plenty of time to start making that case. And in March of the year of the election under these circumstances, which are likely not to change, I just, I don't see it. And I don't, you know, it would take a lot to convince me uh, otherwise. I mean, to be fair to her, this is not, this is far from the first I'm hearing of this. So she has at least in local circles been talking about it. Right, but you know she's not running to be the senator of Atlanta or the senator of your district. She's running to be the senator of the state of Georgia. And I can tell you, people in Athens, they don't know who she is. Most of the people in the state don't know who she is. And it's just one of those things where, you know, we knew we had a Senate race for a while. I mean, it's not like this happened yesterday. This has been months and months in the making. Um, and... Again, I just don't see it. I don't see her raising. I, I imagine she will, you know, raise uh, some money, but it won't be the multi-million dollars required to compete in the state of Georgia because, you know, there it's just like Georgia's a huge state and it takes a lot to to win it. And you know, I understand that in an ideal world, everyone should have the opportunity to run and that money shouldn't matter. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in the state of Georgia that is a huge state that has many media markets you have to compete in and you have to travel around the whole state to win. And I just, I just don't see the, the path. In the same way we were talking about you know, for Bujaj and Warren and Klobuchar where there's just not a mathematical path to them to win, I think that's the same for her and that you know, the only thing I think is being achieved here is helping the Republicans win. And if that is her goal, she's doing a great job. All right. Well, I think we are going to leave it there for today. Uh, Greg Bluestein laid out the stakes of Georgia politics this week. He said it was going to be a really interesting week. Um, and I agree with him. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things to look forward to. It definitely sets the table for what is coming later this year. For now, we're going to leave that there. You will hear from us again soon, checking in on what happens with Super Tuesday and getting back into uh, the nuts and bolts of what's going on in legislative session. But for now, we will leave it there. So Megan, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks as always for having me in a quick PSA from your friendly podcaster. Stay calm, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and quit buying up all the damn N95 respirator masks if you're not a first responder or working in emergency medicine. Okay, thanks. And Luke, thank you for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. I'm not buying any masks. For now, we are going to leave it there, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Bye, guys. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.